In the autumn of 1888, a killer terrorized the East End of London. Over a three-month period, Jack the Ripper stalked the streets of Whitechapel, brutally murdering at least five women before vanishing as abruptly as he appeared. More than a century later, Jack the Ripper remains unidentified, but his horrific legacy lives on. Hello and welcome to the Fact and Suspicion podcast. I'm your host, Ben, here with my co-host, Dan. And today's episode, we will be discussing our first serial killer, Dan, Jack the Ripper. Well, I mean, may as well start with the, I mean, he's probably not the first serial killer, but he is commonly acknowledged as the first. Right. Though before the term serial killer. Right. Which is part of the reason they had such a hard time finding him, right? They, they just didn't have the current, right. uh, any current... Uh, police methodologies. Uh, they didn't even know what a serial killer was. You know, a, a killer uh, picking off victims at random without any particular motive that uh, was just completely alien to them at the time. But before we start, there is one thing I, I didn't tell you, Dan. All right. We have been voted the most underrated podcast of the year. By who? Well, that that's the thing. Uh, it was our poll. Oh, okay, okay. And okay. technically speaking, we were the only podcast on the ballot, but but I think it counts. Well, considering is it the, you know it's our viewers that voted on that, right. they, they're the people that we trust the most. That's true, right? So, and if it works for Putin, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should not be employing those tactics. So. Right. Okay, so let's get to it because there is a lot to cover. Um. One of the most, one of the difficult things about this case, uh, one of the most frustrating things, as anyone who has researched it can tell you, is that historians can't even necessarily agree on who Jack's victims were. Right. Right. So when I'm going through the victims, um, understand that I may leave someone out that you think, that you genuinely believe was a Ripper victim. And, and that's fine. Um, but there are five commonly accepted victims, uh, usually referred to as the canonical five. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be discussing all of those, plus one more, uh, Martha Tabram, who uh, has who, uh, commonly is believed today. I say commonly, again, using these words roughly because ripperologists, as they like to call themselves, don't really agree on much of anything. But Martha Tabram could be the first victim of Jack the Ripper. Um the canonical first victim is uh, Marianne Nichols, but given the uh, the state of the wounds on Martha Tabram and the time frame, it, she really does appear to be a Ripper victim. Right. Of course, we'll never know, but I am going to discuss her because I think it's an interesting uh, part of the case. I actually don't know very much about Jack the Ripper. I've seen some movies about Jack the Ripper, you know, some documentaries and stuff, but I never really... I wanted to look into it too much because every time I did, I got frustrated with the fact that they just don't know for sure yeah. who he killed. So it's, it's really, it's confusing. It's, yeah, well, and the thing with Jack the Ripper documentaries is that you can watch 50 and yeah. get 50 completely different pieces of information, right? None of them agree. Because the victims can be different. I mean, and oh my God, don't even get me started on the arguments about who Jack was. <laughs> We're going to cover some of the, I think some of the, stronger suspects mm-hmm. and i use that term loosely right but like i said we've got a lot to cover so let's begin with martha tabram who was murdered in the early morning hours of august the 7th 
Um, her body was discovered on the first floor landing of the George Yard residential complex by a tenant named John Reeds uh, at around 4.45 as he was leaving for work. Now, uh, she was lying on her back in a pool of blood. Um, Reeves, startled, obviously, ran for help and quickly found Constable Thomas Barrett, who was the first officer to arrive on the scene at around 4.50. So, very quickly. It was like a five, five minutes in between finding the body and a constable appearing on the scene. Right. Uh, medical examiner Timothy Kill, uh, Colleen arrived shortly after at 5.30, so about 40 minutes longer. Uh, it was determined that Martha, who had yet to be identified, just to be clear at this point, had been stabbed around 39 times between her chest and abdomen. Now, what exactly would a medical examiner do during this period of time? Apparently, uh, not a lot. <laughs> because the, the times of death, I mean, time of death today is, can be more of an art than science. Right. So you can imagine what it was like in 1888. Like, these times of death I give you are, are rough estimates, okay? And in fact, there's quite a bit of argument later on about some of the uh, some of the estimates. So when I think of a of a medical examiner at that point, I think about like Johnny Depp and Sleepy Hollow <laughs> right. with his little toolkit. You know, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think that's far off. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Colleen estimated that her time of death was approximately uh, three hours prior, uh, which put the murder around two thirty. Okay. Uh, now a couple things to note: one. It's likely that she was murdered where she was found uh, due to a lack of blood in the surrounding area. Um, so it doesn't appear that she was dragged from a different location. Uh, but this is strange considering that none of the other tenants heard any screams or any uh, struggle at all. And Martha herself wasn't a tenant of George Yard. Uh, her last known address was a lodging see, called Satchel's Lodging, uh, and it was just a few blocks away. So it's possible that she uh, was lured to this area, which makes sense considering uh, she was a prostitute by trade. Right. Now, a friend of hers named Mary Ann Connolly uh, testified that she had been out drinking with Martha and a couple of soldiers earlier in the night. Uh, the two soldiers, just to be clear, uh, were clients. Right. Um, now, around midnight, the two left, uh, each with one of the soldiers, and Connolly saw Mary lead her client towards George Yard. So they went out to drinks with their prospective clients, and now they've gone off to, you know, right. do their business. Do the business. Right. Have a transaction. Now, do we know if that particular client lived in that building? We know very little about this client, because as you'll learn in a minute, no one could identify him. Mm. Which leads to speculation, which is part of the speculation that Martha might not have been a victim of Jack. Or oh, that he could have yeah. been a soldier. Right. But we'll get there in a minute. Uh, so there's something we need to address real quick concerning Martha's murder. That has long made some people skeptical that she was, in fact, a Ripper victim. Uh, remember I said that her client that night was a soldier. Yes. Right. Well, about two hours after Connolly saw, Mary, uh, saw Martha, Constable Barrett, was making his rounds when he noticed a drunken soldier loitering around the entrance to George Yard. Um, Barrett approached the man and made making friendly conversation. He, he said something about, um, he recognized the man was a soldier, so he said, well, shouldn't you be back to the barracks by now? And, and the man told him uh, that he was waiting on a mate of his. 
And of course, Constable Barrett, that seemed reasonable, so he went on about his business, right? Uh, because he, he wasn't trying to uh, mess with the man. He was just making polite conversation, and he knew the man was drunk, and it seems to be that he was just making sure he wasn't going to be late back to the barracks because he knew he could get in trouble. Right, okay. And he said he was waiting on a mate. So uh, now is that thought to be the, the client of the other prostitute? See, it could have been. Uh, we're not exactly sure. I'll get there in just a okay, second. Sorry. So it is possible that this was the same soldier who had, let's say, sampled Martha's wares. Mm. Uh, it definitely fits. Uh, he was hanging out around George Place where she had led him. Um, and he was waiting on a friend, and that could be the friend who had gone off with Marianne Connolly. Mm, yeah. So, uh, but unfortunately, we'll never know because neither Connolly nor Barrett could identify this man in the inquest. In fact, they both tried and failed. That is, they identified people who had clear-cut alibis. They could not have been the man that, that she had gone off with. All right, okay. And at that point, the, according to the investigators, they were just worthless as, uh, as witnesses. Right, if you've already wrongly identified someone, you know what do you, there's not much they can do with that, right? Especially if it has to go to court. Yeah, that that makes sense. Though I I would wonder if you know they couldn't, you know, track down the other soldier. At that point, maybe. Yeah. From what I understand, they couldn't identify either one of them. Okay, okay. you have to remember they were hammered. Yeah, that that makes sense. Both so, of them, yeah. or all four of them, were drunk. Mm-hmm. So, uh. And it doesn't appear that the soldiers ever came forward. Maybe they had wives. You, just, you never know, right? Right. And at that period of time, you wouldn't, you wouldn't come forward if you had a wife, I imagine. Right. So as you can imagine, the investigation into her death dried up almost immediately. Right. Now, three weeks later, on the 31st of August, Jack struck again. A local prostitute, again, another prostitute, all of these victims uh, engaged in some form of prostitution at some point. Right. Well, that probably also makes the investigation less likely to be thorough, I would think. So, because I, I mean, there's just a history of, you know, like authorities not caring as much about prostitutes. I would agree with you probably initially. Right. Well, right. I guess and once one the, it's dead a bigger, yeah. They probably didn't care too much. But at some point, this, like, the fear becomes such a fever pitch mm-hmm. and the outcry about the police not catching him, they, they cared. I mean, even if it wasn't necessarily not, for the reasons, not for the right reasons, to, yeah, but uh, they, but cared. they cared. So yeah. they, the reasons are debatable, but they damn sure cared at some point. Well, I, it just makes me think of of Samuel Little, like the people he targeted, the women Samuel he targeted. Little. He's the truck driver. Oh, that, right, yeah, right, right. the women he targeted made you know there was less attention to them, and it's just it's a problem with law enforcement it has been for years. So, all right, so like I said, three weeks later, August thirty first, Jack strikes again. Uh, this time, the victim was local prostitute Marianne Nichols, um, known in the area as Polly. Sometimes you'll hear her referred to as Polly Ann Nichols. Right. Yeah, I've heard that name before as well. Okay. She was kicked out of Wilmot's lodging house around 1.20 a.m. Uh, because she couldn't afford a room. Uh, she was a well-known alcoholic and had spent her lodging money that night getting drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary, however, uh, it appears wasn't too concerned, uh, because she was convinced she could make the money back. So she left Wilmot in fairly good spirits, searching for a client to cover her room. Now, about an hour later at 2.30, uh, Mary's friend, Ellen Holland, came across an extremely intoxicated Mary near Whitechapel Road. Um, Mary apparently wasn't having any luck finding a client. 
but she still insisted that her next attempt would, would get the money, right? The next guy she found wouldn't be any problems, right? So the two ladies chatted for a couple minutes, and then uh, Mary staggered off down East Whitechapel Road. Uh, this was the last time anyone saw her alive. So with both these women being inebriated, like they, they had to have been easy targets. There's no question. Um, and it's important to remember, um, I probably won't mention this every time because the, the wounds are so severe, but almost all of his victims were actually, it appears to be, uh, they appear to have been asphyxiated first. So it seems that most of the wounds came after. Right. Well, you know, that would explain why no one heard any screams, I suppose. Exactly. Right. And, and also, it's really easy to sneak up on someone that's that drunk. Right, exactly. So I'm not surprised there weren't any screams. No, no I'm not either. I mean, particularly if he came up behind them and, you know, put them in a chokehold of some sort, they wouldn't have been able to scream out. Right. So at 3.40 a.m., a carman, or that's a cart driver, apparently. Right. I had to look that up. Named Charles Cross was walking down Bucks Row on his way to work when he saw something that he thought was a tarp uh, lying near a horse stable on the other side of the road. Remember, it was very dark at this point, right? Yes. It was 3.40 a.m., and it wasn't like this was a well-lit area, right? This was London in 1888, and the East End at that, which was a slum. It, public uh, public services were not exactly great, right? right? So probably not a lot of gas lights in the, right, gas right, lights right. In, the, in the East End there. Unfortunately, however, on closer inspection, it was not a tarp, but the body of Mary Ann Nichols. So, understandably startled, Cross wasn't sure exactly what to do. So, he called out to another man who was approaching from behind him uh, for help. The man's name was Robert Paul, and as it happens, he was also a cart driver on his way to work. So, they have to go to work pretty early, it seems. Yeah, there's a lot of cart drivers in this story. I guess that was a popular profession back then. Anyways, uh, together, the two approached the body. Now, because of how dark it was, the two weren't even certain Mary was dead. Um, she was cold to the touch in some areas, but seemed warm in others. And But Paul thought perhaps it, uh, he could feel her chest moving, implying that she might still be alive. And believing that she might still be alive, Daniel, what do you think they did next? Well, I don't, I don't think people knew how to do CPR back then, did they? No, no, it wasn't CPR. They left because they were late for work. Ah, uh, uh, so this, That's the exact opposite, right? So, despite believing she might still be alive, uh, the two men were more concerned about being late for work. So they left and continued their commute. Now, wow. let's be fair, right? This was an extremely poverty-stricken area. Again, London, eighteen eighty-eight, East End. It was a slum. It's dead bodies losing in the your job. Right, dead bodies, not exactly no, a rare no. sight. And losing your job could be utterly life-altering. You could die, right? Right, right, yeah. It's not like today where we can just go find another job, right? So let's, let's, you know, some sympathy there, or at least we can probably empathize with their position just a little, I suppose. Though it is a little callous, let's be honest. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I would imagine their employers probably wouldn't take I found a dead body as an excuse either, so. Now, luckily, as callous as this may seem, it ended up not really even mattering uh, because an officer, John Neal, discovered the body during his rounds just a bare few minutes after the two left. Uh, that was at around 3.40 when uh, Neal stumbled upon the body. And also, Neal had a lantern. 
Uh, and it quickly became apparent that Mary could not have been alive when Cross and, and Paul found her because her throat had been deeply slashed. Um, at 4 a.m., Dr. Reese Llewellyn arrived on the scene, and he estimated that Mary had only been dead for approximately a half hour, uh, which means that Cross and Paul must have missed the killer by mere moments. Well, depending on how accurate that... Yeah, right. Yeah. All of this is depending on the accuracy of, you know... Science at the time. 1888, of the, the standards of 1888 medical science. So. Right. And again, I mean, even today, death estimates are not perfect. They're no. constantly called into question in court. But that was the estimate. And further corroborating this is the fact that three other constables had patrolled the exact area only minutes before Mary's body had been found, and none of them saw or heard anything out of the ordinary. So this time, her, her time of death is probably reasonable. It's not probably not perfect, but it's reasonable just because, well, there had been three constables in that area prior, and they didn't see or hear anything. And it seems she was probably killed in that spot, not yes, transported. Yes, yes. That seems to be the case with every one of his victims. Now, I mentioned that Mary's throat was cut. But when her, body, when her body was brought to the mortuary, it became clear that her wounds were actually much, much worse than initially thought. Uh, Dr. Llewellyn discovered several incisions across Mary's abdomen, suggesting that the killer was attempting to disembowel her, which, of course, could mean that he was interrupted in the act. Right, that, that makes sense, that the cart driver came up on him when he was... Right, right. Yeah. Uh, further, the placement of the incisions... Uh, suggested to Llewellyn that the killer may have had some degree of anatomical knowledge, even if rough, right? It's possibly a doctor. Uh, or, or at least someone with some knowledge of uh, of anatomy, right? Well, I guess you could get that from a, a book a back book. then, though, yeah. And not so. that books were... I, I don't want to say that. Maybe books were pretty... Were books extremely common by this point? If if you were wealthy, I think it was you would have... Well, would none of these people you, were wealthy. I, I don't know... I don't know, you know, someone that's poverty stricken. I don't think they'd have access to books at that point. I mean, so. and would they even be able to read at this point? I mean, yeah, I, some of them, I'd, I'd say. My guess is the literacy rate was not particularly high at this point. Well, not, probably not on the East End, at any rate. Now, again, unfortunately for the investigators, the killers left behind the killer left behind absolutely no clues that would help identify him, and the case went cold. Uh, the similarities to the Tabram case, however, did not go unnoticed. Uh, you know, both women were prostitutes of similar age and social class. Uh, both were murdered with a great deal of overkill. And both cases lacked any apparent motive. Of course, investigators, as we discussed, investigators didn't have a name for this in 1888, but it was starting to look like they were dealing with a serial killer. Right. And you don't necessarily need a motive when you're dealing with those. No, sir. I mean, you rarely get one unless it's, my sick fantasies led me to rape and murder you in a very specific manner, which isn't the sort of motive that police are used to dealing with. It's not well, the sort that helps at all. Well, not back then, anyway. Right. Okay, so moving on. Uh, this time, there was about a week's reprieve uh, before Jack struck again. On September 8th at around 6 a.m., a man named John Davis discovered the mutilated body of Annie Chapman in the small backyard of his apartment complex on his way to work. Uh, he immediately ran into the street and flagged down three other men. Uh, 
who, who themselves went and found a constable. Uh, within minutes, they found uh, Constable John Chandler. And what they said to him starts to give you an idea of the public perception at this time, uh, by this point. Uh, they said, another woman has been murdered. Right? So it was obviously common knowledge by this point, and uh, you, you can tell from, uh, we still have, we have newspapers from this time, so we know that the reports were, were all over the place by this point. Mm-hmm. They knew that someone was killing women. But I've always thought that was an interesting statement. They didn't say, hey, we found a woman over here who had been killed. They said, another woman has been murdered. Right. Implying that anyone who heard that would know exactly what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so by this point, the media had pieced together that these murders were likely connected, right? Uh, and the story was occupying a growing percentage of the press coverage. Uh, the situation hadn't reached the fever pitch that it would shortly by this point, but it was getting there. Were they able to tell at the time if they thought that it could have been the same weapon that was used on both of them, or did they just not, were not so, able to, to... That's a matter of some debate, as most things in this case are, but the consensus at least seems to be that at least the slash across the neck was probably done with the same weapon with every woman. Okay. Though it's it's hard to know exactly how well they could determine that at that point in time. Right, so further to t- further uh, pointing to the public outcry at this point, or that you know starting to become that fever pitch it would get to, uh, is the fact that by the time Constable, uh, Constable Chandler arrived on the scene ten minutes later, there was already a crowd of people trying to get a glimpse of the corpse. Mm-hmm. Um, by six thirty, uh, Doctor George Phillips was on the scene. And it was quickly apparent that Annie's murder was the most gruesome yet. And just to be clear, if if you're squeamish, never look up any of these medical pictures. We do have photos of some of them, and they are horrific. In fact, you might not even want to hear this next part that's coming up. So Annie had a similar cut to her throat as in the Nichols case, uh, stab wounds across her abdomen, but this time, the killer didn't just try to disembowel her. He succeeded. Her intestines had been torn out and thrown across her shoulder. They were still connected, by the way. And her uterus was missing, along with parts of her bladder and vagina. Sorry, ladies. Dr. Phillips was so disturbed by the scene that he refused to go into detail during the inquest. Now, the, the uterus, it was, it was like taken it wasn't yeah, like it was scene. gone, missing. Mm. And it's not the only one that will go missing in this case. That that seems to really say something. This guy really hates women. That does appear to be yeah. the case, right? Because the, the overkill involved in these right. and the way he attacked uh, the genitals. Yeah. Uh, it really does seem to be he had some some women issues. Right. Well, I mean, without that, you would almost say that that it's it's like an opportunity because prostitutes are an easy target. Right. But... Then you have to look at the fact, like that uterus being missing. That 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 says something else altogether. Maybe so, but it could just be it means that he really hates women and he's a sick fuck. And uh, prostitutes are just easy targets. It just could be both, right? Combined. Yeah, definitely hates definitely, women, yeah. and the easiest women to kill are drunken prostitutes. Okay, so now time of death is a little more tricky uh, with Annie. Uh, Dr. Phillips put the murder at around 4.30, but this seems to contradict witnesses who believe they may have heard the murder 
more than a half hour later at 5.15. It's generally accepted that the witnesses are more reliable uh, since time of death estimates, as we discussed, are were far from an exact science in 1888. Also, while the witness accounts don't corroborate one another, they aren't inconsistent either. That, that is, that all of the accounts could be true without any contradiction. Right. right. The thing that strikes me about that time frame, though, is at that time in London, if you have people already going to work at 3.30 in the morning, mm-hmm. like 5.15, you think it almost be getting busy at that point. Yeah, yeah. So that that seems like a bad time to try that. Almost. It really does. But, uh, I mean, they were isolated at the times, it, it appears, when they were murdered. So uh, it, it must not have been too busy, right? Now, um, Elizabeth Long's account is particularly interesting uh, because she may, she may have actually seen Jack with Annie. At 5.30, she passed a man and woman standing yards from the spot Annie was found. Uh, she heard the man ask something like, can you? And the woman replied, yes. Uh, Long later identified the woman as Annie Chapman, but unfortunately the man was facing away from her, so she never got a look at his face. Uh, she described him as wearing a long black coat and a deerstalker cap, which if you don't know, I had to look this up, is one of those goofy looking two-sided uh, Sherlock caps. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's that's why a lot of the depictions of Jack have that hat on. Yeah. And remember, Annie, like the other victims, uh, was a prostitute. So it's feasible. Long could have seen the transaction Jack used to lure Annie to her death. Uh, but, of course, yet again, the killer got away without a trace, and the investigation dried up immediately. Basically as quickly as it begun. And, you know, wearing a long black coat, I don't know about the deerstalker cat, but a long black coat, I would say just about any man walking through London that time would be wearing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's common attire, I'm yeah. sure. So, now, we should probably pause here to discuss the first of the infamous letters, uh, usually referred to as the Dear Boss letter. Mm-hmm. So, on September 27th, the Central News Agency of London received a letter from a man who claimed to be the killer and assured them that he would kill again. Uh, The problem is that we have no way of knowing whether this letter was legitimate. Uh, The details the author provided could just as easily have come from a newspaper rather than first-hand experience. Um, Investigators at the time and historians to this day are torn on whether this letter was legitimate. Uh, So the letter's authenticity is absolutely uh, unknown, right? But th- to be honest, I don't really care to go into it, uh, to to read it, because there's just no way to know whether it was legitimate in the first place, right? right. Uh, what's really important about this letter is that it's where we got the name Jack the Ripper. Uh, it's how the letters were signed, and well, clearly it caught on. Yeah, apparently so. Yeah, I, I thought about reading the letter, but it doesn't really tell us much of anything useful. Um and again, it was nothing that they couldn't have gotten out of a newspaper anyways. Now, uh, this letter also sparked a slew of copycat letters, uh, which were sent to newspapers across London. Uh, but no one really takes most of them seriously, with the exception of one that we're going to get to a little later. Uh, and it may actually be legitimate. Right. Uh, but for now, let's get back to the victims. Uh, after Annie Chapman... Uh, Jack went quiet for nearly three weeks. 
but he came back with a vengeance by murdering two women on the same night uh, within about an hour of each other. Uh, this is commonly known to Ripper historians as the double event. The two victims were 45-year-old Elizabeth Stride and 46-year-old Catherine Eddowes. So, around 1 a.m. on September the 30th, uh, the steward of a socialist club on Burner Street, uh, the talk that night, by the way, was titled, Why Jews Should Be Socialist. Wow. Right. Uh, well, I thought you misspoke for a minute, a minute and said social club, but no, it's No, it was, it was actually, uh, I get that, but it was club, actually a socialist club, right? Okay, all right. Uh, the, steward, uh, the steward's name was Louis Demshue. Uh, he was pulling up to the Saturday meeting in his cart when his horse suddenly veered off path and nearly ran him into a wall. Uh, curious, he jumped down to investigate and saw that the horse had swerved to avoid a woman lying on the ground. Uh, the woman was Elizabeth Stride. Uh, but it was dark, and Mr. Dimshutes Mr. was familiar with the murders, so he was worried that the woman might be his wife. Uh, so he ran inside of the club to check on her. Uh, she was fine, so he and several of the other men then fanned out to go look for a constable. Now, they said this was 1 a.m.? Mm -hmm. So he's on the way to a, a club meeting at okay, 1 a.m.? Okay, to be fair, I should probably be a little more specific there. The meeting was over, but uh, after the meeting, it was common for men to, for the men to stay around and socialize. Okay. And yes, I do mean men. Uh, I've read in some places that women weren't even allowed I don't know that because that's that that's not something I've read from any real reliable sources. But it's eighteen eighty eight. It's not that unlikely. No, with eighteen eighty eight, a lot of a lot of private clubs I mean, that were men only. So I mean, the, the women folk probably didn't need to be worrying their pretty little heads with things like philosophy, right? Yeah, that that is the time period. Yeah. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> you can't be making those jokes. Oh come on! It had to be done. Oh. They know I'm kidding. Okay, so, just he was kidding. <laughs> so they soon found Constable Henry Lamb, uh, who arrived on the scene around one ten, uh, before leaving to get Doctor Frederick Blackwell. Uh, the two return the, the two returned to the scene about five minutes later at one fifteen, uh, where it was determined that Elizabeth had likely been killed sometime between twelve forty five and twelve fifty six. I know that's a weird time frame, right? Notably, Stride's body wasn't mutilated like the other victims. Uh, she seems to have died from a single, uh, extremely deep cut to her throat. Um, though Jack more than made up for this with his second kill of the night. Uh, maybe that was the whole point of the second kill. Very possible. He was However, interrupted and wasn't able to... Yeah, uh, we're going to get to that in just a bit. But, but yeah, you're definitely on to something there. That could absolutely be what happened here. So, less than a mile away, at around 145, uh, Constable Edward Watkins was doing his round in Mitre Park. Mitre Square, I'm sorry. Uh, when he discovered the body of Catherine Eddowes. Uh, her throat had been cut, her face had been horrifically mutilated, and her left kidney was missing. Also, her entrails were lying next to her head. Yeah, like I said, he more than made up for it with this one. Now, what's interesting about this murder is how quickly it must have been done. You see, Constable Watkins had just been there less than 15 minutes prior, 
and a constable James Harvey had been very close to there ten minutes after that, and he heard nothing. Uh, neither man saw or heard anything out of the ordinary. Um, so it seemed as though Jack had maybe a five-minute window to commit this horrific crime. Like I'm sure it could be done in five minutes. It just it seems difficult. I mean, that's... It seems like you'd have to know what you were doing anatomically to get it that, done that fast. That's a lot of the speculation there, yeah. right? That he wasn't just chopping away at random. Uh, the medical exam- examination suggests that Eddowes had been killed within minutes of the body being found, uh, placing her time of death around 140. So again, it seems like the killer was just missed. Now, remember how I said that Elizabeth Stride only had the common wound or throat? Yes. Well, it's speculated that dim shoots may have interrupted the killer before he could finish his work, just like you said a minute ago. In fact, some ripperologists believe that it might have been the killer escaping that spooked his horse in the first place. That would make sense if, if the dead body wouldn't spook the horse on its own. Yeah, right, rather than yeah. the body. Uh, so, unsatisfied, Jack made the less than 15-minute walk to Mitre Square, where he found and murdered Catherine Eddowes. If this is true, it's possible that Jack was actually trapped inside the alleyway near the Socialist Club, um, because there was only one exit in, um, in that alleyway. But I suppose when, uh, when Dimshoots went inside, he would have been able to... See, to get away then. it's long been thought that uh, had Dimshoots actually stopped to investigate the body more thoroughly rather than run in to check on his wife, that he probably would have seen the killer. Of course, he could have also been brutally and horrifically murdered. So exactly. It's yeah. probably best that he didn't, right? Or it, even if, if he had seen the killer, would he have gotten a decent enough look? Right. It was dark. It's hard to say. This is all speculation. In fact, I was just going to point that out. You have to remember that all of this is speculation. The notion that, that Jack might have been trapped in there, that uh, Dim Sheets could have seen him, all of it. We have no evidence to actually suggest that, right? Yeah, and if you have no kind of weapon, I wouldn't want to try to apprehend someone that just, right. just, just murdered someone. Exactly, right. But if this scenario is true, this was almost certainly the closest Jack ever got to being caught. Now, before we get to Jack's final victim, uh, remember how I said that one of the copycat letters might have been genuine? Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. On October the 16th, a man named George Lusk, who was the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, uh, which was a civilian organization uh, trying to track down and unmask Jack the Ripper, uh, he received a package in the mail. Inside was a letter and a small cardboard box. Daniel, would you like to guess what was inside of the cardboard box? The kidney? A human kidney. Now, several doctors examined the gift, and all agreed that it was, in fact, a human kidney. Uh, But, of course, they couldn't determine exactly whether it came from Catherine Eddowes, right? There was no way to determine that at that point. Right. Uh, so again, it, it's interesting, but we just don't know if Jack sent it. It seems certainly seems plausible considering he sent a kidney and there was one missing from Catherine Eddowes, but we don't know. It, it could have been a, 
could have been a medical student playing a joke. It could have been a doctor. It could have been a, a journalist, as has long been speculated. Right. Uh, anyone who had access to, uh, you know, to a medical equipment and a, and a kidney. Right. Right. And, and honestly, as macabre as it is to think about it, getting a kidney back then probably wasn't that difficult. You know, any anywhere where a dead body was stored, someone would probably sell you one, right? Right, like a, exactly. A mortuary, some of that. I'm not really sure what the process was back then for. for yeah, yeah that, bodies, that's a fair but, point. Yeah. Um, but again, we, yeah, we just don't know if the letter was was authentic. Now, as for the letter itself, I'm not going to read it in its entirety. Uh, but it did, for what it's worth, the the person who wrote it did insist that that kidney belonged to Catherine Eddowes, right? But remember that this had been widely reported on. Anyone who could read a newspaper knew that Catherine Eddowes had a missing kidney. Right. See, I think in this day and age, they wouldn't report the kidney. You're missing. probably right. Uh, just to be able to well, determine. journalists would if they knew about it. If they knew it, about it, but the police, police wouldn't would have let it. that get out. Right? Exactly. You know, one thing I've got to say, though, about the, the letters, I've always questioned, questioned their authenticity mm-hmm. because someone that would send that letter seems like they really want that credit. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems like that type of killer wouldn't have stopped. That's a fair point. Um, unless he was though, killed or something. Though, right? to be clear, we don't know if Jack voluntarily stopped. We know that he stopped. We just don't know why. Right. He, he could have died. died. Yeah. He could have been put in prison for uh, uh, an unrelated crime. and they just Robbery. Never the dots, robbery, right. anything, right? Mm-hmm. I, I would say it's extraordinarily rare for a serial killer just to quit cold turkey. No, uh, in I, fact, the only instance I can think of, and he actually eventually started killing again, was BTK. He went for like 20 years after his right. initial killing spree without killing again. And then he got his dumb ass caught because he didn't know what metadata was. Right. Well, well, the Zodiac quit too, apparently, but he, he could have yeah, that, died as well. That's fair. He could have died as well. Uh, you know, so like I said, uh, it, uh, the investigators at the time, as well as historians and ripperologists since, are all torn on these letters. There's just no consensus whether they were true. Uh, one of the more popular theories, as I mentioned a minute ago, among investigators at the time was that it might have just been a hoax from a journalist trying to sell newspapers. Uh, but we'll just never know. Though I think the the kidney was at least a nice touch if, if it wasn't the killer. Okay, so Jack's final victim. A little over a week later, on November the 9th, uh, Jack would take his last known victim uh, when he killed 25-year-old Mary Jane Kelly. And, dear God, man, he went out with a bang. This one's, this one's tough, man. Again, I've, I've said this before, but I'm going to stress it on this one. Never, if you are squeamish, look up the picture of Mary Jane Kelly. And you'll, you'll understand why in a second. Um, at 10.45 in the morning, Thomas Bowyer, uh, an assistant at the Miller's Court apartment complex, was sent to room 13 to, to demand a back payment from the tenant Mary Jane Kelly. But when he knocked on the door, she didn't answer. Now, uh, it's believed that, or he believed at the time that she was just avoiding him uh, because she didn't have the money. So he went around to the side uh, to look through the window. When he got there, two of the windows had been knocked out. So Bowyer reaches through the broken glass window and scoots the curtain aside. And what he saw was the stuff of nightmares, man. Uh, Mary Jane Kelly was laying in her bed, 
mutilated beyond recognition. I'm going to go into specifics here in a minute, but you're probably going to wish I had. Uh, Bowyer, in a panic, uh, ran to get a police officer. Uh, he found Inspector Walter Beck and Detective Walter Dew, uh, sometimes referred to as the Walters. Uh, they don't play a very important role in the story. Uh, but he was so distraught, he could barely even explain the problem. Uh, understandably, again, you'll see in a second. Though once they followed him back to Miller's court, they saw for themselves, right? Uh, before doing anything, the two Walters sent someone to get uh, Inspector Frederick Aberlane, uh, who, was the, who was in charge of the Ripper investigation at the time. You know, they were just two constables on, on their rounds at the time. So they sent for the guy who was in charge of the Ripper investigation. Um, Aberlene arrived on the scene alongside Dr. George Phillips at around 11.30 and almost immediately made uh, a now pretty infamous judgment call. Uh, rather than break the windows in, and, or rather than break the door in, rather, and begin the investigation immediately, uh, he wanted to wait until two police bloodhounds, which had recently been hired on by the department, could, could be brought to the scene uh, to help look for the killer. Because that's what he was really worried about at the time. You remember that forensics were not what they were. Right. Their best chance of catching him was to get the trail of the killer immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, today, there might be some real important evidence in there. But then, they just didn't have the technology we have today. Exactly. So he was right that his best chance was probably to find the killer immediately and worry about what was inside of that room a little later, right? Because they probably weren't going to find anything that useful. But here's the problem. No one told Aberlene that the department decided not to pay the dogs or the dog's owner for their services any longer. So they weren't coming. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, investigators ended up wasting about two hours that they could have spent doing their jobs investigating. Uh, so it's possible that any valuable evidence uh, or clues went missing or were missing uh, because of this lost time. Now, that's just, a, that's just speculation. You know, today we could say almost with a surety that you would miss something if you waited that two-hour period. But as we just said, with forensics being what it was, who knows? Right. But it's definitely true that they could have actually been looking for the killer in this two hours. Right, that's two hours that he had to get away. Yeah. Um, so obviously, this did not do much to help the already poor public sentiment uh, related to the, inve- uh, the uh, investigation at this point. Right. Now, eventually, Aberlene uh, realized that the dogs weren't coming. And around 1.30, the, uh, sorry, 1.30 that afternoon, just, that should probably be clear, but right. uh, the building superintendent arrived with the keys. So finally, the investigation could begin uh, in earnest. And the scene from the window turned out to be a downright pleasant view compared to what they found inside. The police sergeant, Dr. Bond, described the state of the corpse like this. Quote, the whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all around to the bone, but her head was barely hanging on. 
but it actually gets worse than that description. Similar to the other victims, the organs were piled next to Kelly's body. Her kidneys, uterus, and a single breast were placed underneath her head, and her heart had just vanished. He also added flaying to his repertoire. He had peeled the skin from her thighs like a Bolton in Game of Thrones and placed them on the bedside table. The speculation is that the privacy of the home Mm -hmm. allowed him to act out his fantasies in a way that he had been unable to on the streets where he was constantly afraid of getting caught he probably wanted to do this to the other victims and just, probably just so. wasn't able to. This was probably what his fantasy actually was. And the others were just the best he could do, given the circumstances. I think with Kelly, we really saw what kind of monster he was. I mean, not that just murdering people isn't monstrous in its own, but that's a different level, man. Oh, definitely. Yeah, but that's, it's an, another level of of depraved that that's what you want to do to someone, you know, that sort of mutilation. It tells us something about his mental state that I don't think we needed to know. Now, Kelly's time of death is actually the most troublesome of all the river victims. For one, the long delay after the body was discovered made any estimates much less reliable. Uh, Combine that with the condition of the body and the estimates were all over the place. Um, Dr. Bond believed it was sometime between 1 and 2 a.m., Dr. Phillips estimated uh, it to be between 5 and 6 a.m. And the, Metro- uh, the Metropolitan Police just kind of split the difference and placed the time of death between 3.30 and 4 a.m. But the truth is that no one knows for certain when she was killed. Um, if in the other cases, it, you know, time of death estimates were not an exact science, given the condition of her body, even the limited tales they had at the time, right, just didn't apply in her case. So they did the absolute best they could do, mostly based on the temperature and the amount of blood. Um, it, it, with that kind of, those have any injuries, though? Like, I don't know if the amount of blood would really, would matter as much because, you know, after they're dead so long, you're going to start, it's going to start to congeal and whatever else, whatever other injuries they accrue at that point. You know, it's, it should be hard to determine how much blood there was. Right, be, right. You know? Yeah, it was just this entire uh, case with Kelly was just a mess. I mean, uh, not just, the, of course, the the horrific state of her body, but just even the, the mistakes made after her body was found. It just all compounded. And, of course, just like with the other, invest- uh, with the other victims, the investigation went absolutely nowhere. And, unfortunately, they would never get another chance because... After this murder, Jack the Ripper vanished as quickly as he had appeared. You know, you have to wonder, though, that maybe, you know, we say these killers never quit, but maybe if he really enacted his true fantasy that he really wanted to commit, that may have been enough for him. Maybe. Uh, that that would be probably one in a billion. I mean, usually what, they're, what they do is not exactly what their fantasy is, and it just right. gets more extreme as it goes on. This is usually an escalating thing. But who knows? My guess, and you know, I don't know, he probably died or just left and killed elsewhere. Now, there's other possibilities. Right. Is someone that kind of violent, you never know if they could get into a bar fight or something. It's just, 
Right. It could be anything. A freak accident, right? Mm-hmm. So now let's get into some suspects. Now, there are more suspects than we could possibly cover, Daniel. It seems like everyone who had been in Whitechapel at any point and maybe acted a bit bizarre at some point is considered a ripper suspect by someone. Like, if you're breathing and we're in Whitechapel, you've probably been accused of being Jack the Ripper at some point. Right. Well, with the lack of evidence and the popularity of this particular case, that's bound to happen. Right, right. Everyone's got their own theory. I mean, some of them are just outright absurd, uh, such as the conspiracy theory that Prince Albert was Jack the Ripper. Uh, and that the crown covered it up. Um, the idea is that he contracted syphilis, went mad, and suddenly developed a compulsion to kill women. And then because he was royalty, it got covered up. Well, I mean, it we will not be covering that theory. I'm just saying it wouldn't be the first time the crown covered something up or covered for someone. That's true, but there's just no evidence to suggest Prince Albert was Jack the Ripper. No, That's let's, ludicrous. Let's not get into Prince Andrew right now. Albert. I'm talking about Prince Andrew and his. I mean,. I, I just mean the, you know, the you letting know, I, things I, go. I, my, that's his, not where my mind went immediately, but yeah, yeah that's a fair point. I, I'm not saying that the Crown covered that up, but I think so, they definitely turned the Well, I think they may have away. tried to, but then that stupid interview he gave. You know the one I'm talking about? Oh, I know what you're talking about. Have you ever seen anyone seem more guilty? No. I mean, well, hey, maybe uh, Prince Albert had given some sort of newspaper interview and just seemed really guilty at some point. I don't know. Oh. So, let's begin with some more reasonable suspects. And just to be clear, folks, when I say reasonable, that's 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 loose. That's very, I use that term very loosely with a lot of these. Again, anybody with a just about everyone with a pulse has been a ripper suspect at some point. So I'm picking what I consider the either the most interesting or best ones. I don't think any of them are that plausible, except maybe one. The last one we're going to discuss. So if I if I leave out your preferred Ripper suspect, I'm sorry. Like we have certain time constraints, so I picked the ones I thought were the most interesting. Right, but but if you do have another suspect you like, leave it in the comments. Leave it in the comments. Yeah, right? we'd love yeah. to know. We'd love to know. We'd love to know why you think that. Right. Okay, so let, let's get started. So a more recent suspect that has gained a lot of attention uh, is American Doctor Francis Tumblety. Uh, Tumblety was suggested by Chief Inspector John Littlechild in a letter to journalist George Sims. Uh, Sims had written to him inquiring about any potential suspects in the case, and Little Child mentioned Tumblety specifically as a doctor, or I'm sorry, a quack doctor, uh, who was a very likely suspect in his opinion. Uh, Little Child told Sims that Tumblety had been arrested for uh, gross indecency with a number of males in November of 1888 and that he had subsequently fled the country and skipped bail. Uh, Little Child further claimed that Tumblety had committed suicide, and that from that point, the murders had stopped. A few problems there. Uh, however, Little Child was mistaken. Uh, Tumblety had not committed suicide. Uh, he eventually resurfaced in New York. And because of these accusations, the American press immediately started questioning his role in the murders. Um, advocates of Tumblety as Jack the Ripper often point to his disparaging comments about women uh, and a claim that he had a collection of uteruses uh, which he kept in jars and liked to show off to guests. It's also true that American law enforcement 
uh, kept an eye on him. Like they actively surveyed him, um, uh, surveilled him, and that some of his friends and family seemed to have believed he was the Ripper. Well, do we have any corroboration for that collection of uteruses? We're going to get to that. Hold okay. on. That, that said, the case against Tumblety isn't particularly strong. Uh, to start with, the main reason he was suspected by Little Child in the first place appears to be that the guy was gay. Right. <laughs> Which doesn't tell us a lot about whether he was Jack the Ripper, right? No, no. But in that time period, you had a lot of, uh, well, a lot of, uh, you call it prejudice. I, it's more than that, though. Right. Uh, I mean, let's be honest. That bad pro- sentiment. That probably would not have been an uncommon opinion, right? Right. That if you could engage in indecent activities with another man, you might be a psychotic serial killer, right? I mean, right. such was your character, obviously. Right. Um, so, uh, to begin with, like I said, the, the case against Tumblety not very strong. Uh, to begin with, uh, like I said, the main reason that they suspected him appeared to be that he was gay. Mm-hmm. Or that little child suspected him. He was never a suspect by the police. And as to your question about the uteruses, the only report about the uteruses uh, came from a known con man who didn't even make the allegation until the papers began reporting on Tumblety as a potential suspect. Mm. So you know, take it with a grain, that big old grain of salt. And, and as far as the friends and family uh, believing he was the Ripper, I mean, so what? What does that tell us, right? It, it's not like they had any actual evidence, right? And, and finally, it should be mentioned that the Metropolitan Police, uh, Police never considered Tumblety a suspect. And... Little Child himself, the man who started, who, who first listed him as a suspect in that letter, uh, didn't mention Tumblety when he wrote his autobiography and listed other suspects. So it seems that no one really thought he was the Ripper, except for maybe his family. Right. Uh, maybe Little Child did at some point, but later decided that he didn't, which is why he would have mentioned him in the letter, but left him out of his uh, autobiography. Mm-hmm. Hard to say exactly. Um, but, yeah, th- that that's Francis Tumblety. Yeah, he's, there's a lot of documentaries about him. And, you know, when you're just listing the evidence without any of the contrary facts, he can seem really convincing, right? Like, right. I remember, like, several years ago being really convinced by Tumblety. I mean, he had uteruses and jars. We don't know that. Because the documentaries you watch never actually tell you that that information comes from a damn con man. Right. Who never found trying. the uteruses. Right. I mean, if, if, if I walked into someone's house and they had a bunch of uteruses and jars, yeah, I wouldn't good. go back. No, sir. Might, might even call the police. Yeah. I can imagine trying to back out of there and be like, man, those are some nice... Whatever those are in the jars. <laughs> yeah. Are you uh, making pickles or something? Like... <laughs> Gonna go now. <laughs> Though that seems to be like one of those scenes in the horror movie where you you're at the dinner and you walk into the wrong room, go into the bathroom, and then they appear behind you. You probably yeah. don't get a chance to leave. You don't get to leave after you find that. You have a horrific accident. Mm. Okay, so let's move on to suspect number two, uh, Montague John Druitt. Uh, Druitt was a lawyer. And teacher. And yes, I'm calling him a lawyer and teacher because I'm not saying barrister and schoolmaster. Uh, He he committed suicide shortly after Jack's final murder. Uh, He was the favorite suspect of of Chief Constable Melville McNaughton, uh, one of the most respected lawmen of the time. 
So immediately before his suicide, uh, Druitt had been dismissed from his teaching job um, under mysterious circumstances. And there's no denying that the murder stopped around the time of his death. That's just a fact, right? Uh, in a commonly cited report from Chief Constable uh, McNaughton, and I may be butchering that name, uh, McNaughton claims that he had private information that Druitt's own family uh, strongly suspected him of being the Whitechapel murderer, and that Druitt was, elect- uh, was allegedly sexually insane. I know what you're going to ask, and we're going to get there in just a second. <laughs> you've, probably, you've probably seen some, flaw- some, right. some flaws here, right? Uh, the problem is that this is all, again, at best circumstantial, right? Uh, there's absolutely no physical evidence tying Druitt to any of the Ripper victims. And committing suicide isn't exactly an admission of guilt, right? Uh, regardless of how suspect the timing is. I mean, there were probably any number of people who committed suicide in that godforsaken cesspool in 1888, right? right? I just want to know what sexual insanity is. We're going to get there. We're okay. going to get there. Uh, we should have led off the episode with sexual insanity. Right, because that right. really piqued my interest. It's an interesting term, right? <laughs> so further, it's, it's not clear how much McNaughton, as respected as he was as a lawman, can be trusted. You see, uh, in his reports, he claimed that Druitt was a doctor and 41 years of age. Uh, but Druitt was 31, and as we already discussed was an attorney, not a doctor. And a former schoolmaster. Right. Teacher, Daniel. Teacher. He was a teacher. Teacher. And, and really, like these errors really shouldn't surprise anyone, considering that McNaughton bragged about compiling his entire report from memory <laughs> rather than needing documents. That's, that seems like the kind of thing you wouldn't tell anyone if you were an investigator. Well, he was apparently proud of the fact that after several years, he could remember all these details. And by all accounts, he was a very brilliant man. It is no wonder they never found this guy. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, to be fair, McNaughton was not over the Ripper case, right? Well, if, if he is if he is a any indication... He was just a, a respected lawman right. who became chief constable uh, a little afterwards. Right. But if he became chief constable and he has any indication of how the rest of these constables or investigators or you know whatever you want to call them were performing their jobs right right okay so it should also be noted that no one has ever corroborated McNaughton's claim that Druitt's family uh, suspected him of being the rip right and we have no way of even knowing what was meant by sexually insane right it, it's an odd and kind of intriguing terminology but what does it mean I mean this was 1888 I mean that that could mean uh, anything from, I mean, he had violent sexual fantasies to he preferred sex outside of the missionary position, right? Right, like, he could just, have had some kinks. Don't uh, we don't know. Now, now lastly, uh, there's been a lot of speculation concerning why Druitt was dismissed from his teaching job, uh, with many people suggesting that he may have had some sort of inappropriate relationship with a child, back to the whole sexual insanity thing, right? However, when Druitt's body was pulled out of the river where they found him, he had a check on him um, that appears to be his final month's payment from the school. And it seems really unlikely that you'd pay a guy who had just molested one of your students, right? Exactly, yeah. Now, 
I will say though, like I, I'm not going to defend anything about him molesting a child. If he was molesting a child, then you know I'm. We I'm don't. Glad hold on, he died. I'll be very clear. We don't know that. Right. But what I am trying to say is, you know, someone that molested a child doesn't mean they would go and mutilate women. Either, right, right. Right. So I mean, I mean, you don't want to convict this guy of the wrong thing and let the killer go. Obviously. So what you're saying, Daniel, is it's okay to molest children? Obviously not. No, no. I think. Uh, but I, like, I want to be very clear. Like this stuff with Drew, it's all speculation. We don't know. We have no clue why he was dismissed. Right. And since they paid him, it, he may have even left in uh, in good standing, right? So like, I don't I don't want anyone to come take from this that that we're saying that John Drew molested any children because we don't know. Right. No. No. And, and in fact, like I, I hate to even say that we don't know. It's better to say that there's no evidence at all that right. he molested any children. Um. So the first two suspects. Not particularly compelling. They're interesting, but once you get past some of the more extreme details, like the more sensationalized stuff, you, not a lot there. Not a lot there. But the third suspect that we're going to discuss, and final, um, is easily the most popular currently, and in my opinion, the most intriguing. This one is really fascinating, at least of the modern Ripper suspects, right? Um, this is Charles Cross. Remember him? Cross. It was, was he the one that found the first? Right. He was body? the one who found the body. Well, you know, that's always the, you know, the first person you investigate these days is whoever finds well, the see, body. That's one thing that this theory has going for it, right? That it, it actually involves someone who can be tied to at least one crime scene. Right. Um, so, so already just by being at the scene of one of the crimes definitively, uh, Cross is already like infinitely uh, an infinitely better suspect than most of the others, especially with it being the first right first right. crime. Well, that depends. Of course, could have been Martha Tabram. It, it does, but it does, but right. it is it is the first of the canonical five. Right, you're right there. So let's start with a brief overview. Uh, if you recall, Charles Charles Cross was a cart driver who found the body of Mary Ann Nichols on Bucks Road during his commute to work. Right. Mm-hmm. According to Mr. Cross, he was on his way to work when he noticed what appeared to be a tarp lying across the street next to the the stable, and he went over to check. Uh, But as he approached the object, he discovered it was a woman. Uh, Around this same time, uh, Cross called out to a man named Robert Paul, who was coming up behind him, and the two investigated the scene together, right? At least as best they could in the dark. However, the advocates of the cross theory claim that scenario happened a bit differently. That unbeknownst to Paul, he had actually interrupted Charles Cross in the act of murdering Nichols. And that Cross acted quickly and simply pretended to have discovered the body. Now, it has to be admitted that this is plausible. Uh, For starters, it was dark enough that neither man uh, could even notice the wound on Nichols' neck at the time, right? Right, so he wouldn't have seen the blood on so Cross. So any blood on Cross uh, could have gone unnoticed easily. Especially if he was wearing dark clothing. Exactly. Uh, and it's common knowledge, at least in modern police work, as you said earlier, that the person who discovers the body is automatically a suspect, right? So so already there, there's a lot. There, it's plausible that this man is the murderer, right? I mean, we have to admit that. Uh, but the evidence against Cross doesn't actually end there. Advocates of the theory argue that Paul's testimony at the inquest uh, contradicted Cross's story in an important way. 
So Cross claimed that he was on the opposite side of Buck's Row when he noticed what he thought was a tarp, and that he had gotten about halfway across the road when he noticed that it was, in fact, a woman, and when he called out to uh, Paul, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Paul testified that Cross was, quote, standing where the woman was when he found him at the inquest. Mm-hmm which could suggest that Cross was lying about how close he was to the body at the time, which could further uh, could further go to the point that he had been interrupted in the middle of the kill. Yeah. So rather than being on this side of the road, making it to the middle of the street, and then they both go over here to investigate the body. Um, Cross it, was already standing. Cross was already standing on this side of the road. And if true, this wouldn't be the only lie Cross told to the inquest. Uh, it turns out that he actually testified under a false name. You see, the man who appeared at the inquest as Charles Cross was in reality named Charles Lechmere. Uh, for some reason, he had given his stepfather's surname as his own. And I mean, I would say that's definitely suspicious, right? No, definitely. Definitely. Now, um, in fact, uh, I've heard a lot of people say that it was actually a crime to give a false name at an inquest. No. Just out of curiosity, was it able to be corroborated that he was actually a cart driver? Yeah, that, that, that seems to be pretty spot on. Yeah. I, I haven't seen any real doubt that he uh, worked where he said he did and all that. But we're going to get there in just a minute, okay? Uh, now, further, it's long been speculated that Ripper, that the Ripper was, a, was local to Whitechapel, right? He was someone who knew the area and wouldn't have seemed suspicious wandering about in the early morning hours, uh, right? Someone who could blend in. Uh, and Charles Lechmere fit that bill pretty nicely. Uh, he lived at 22 Doveton, which was only a few streets east of, Buck, of Buck's Row. And his work schedule would have placed him conveniently on the streets at the times the murders were committed. And lastly, speaking of his commute, um, all of the murders, with the exception of Elizabeth Stride, took place between his home and Pickford's Depot, where he worked. Uh, and while Burner Street, where Stride was killed, uh, wasn't on the path to his uh, between his home and Pickford, um, it was just south of Cable Street, where Lechmere's mother lived. So it, it's speculated that he could have killed Stride on his way to his mother's house, perhaps, right? So, I mean, I think it's at least understandable why so many people have come to suspect Charles Cross slash Lechmere mm-hmm. uh, as uh, a as Jack the Ripper. The problem is that as interesting a theory as it is, it's not without some glaring flaws itself. Right. Well, there's no real evidence to start with. Right, right. right. It's all circumstantial. and that, But that's the same for all of these, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's competing against other theories that are also completely circumstantial. Let's start with the supposed contradiction at the inquest, right? Uh, the problem is that we have no idea what Paul actually meant by standing where the woman was, right? Uh, we're talking about a difference of feet. And relative to Paul's position at the time, I mean, Cross was much closer to the body. Right. That, that could have been what he was saying, right? This might not have been an exact, uh, th- that might not have been an exact statement. And even if he was in the middle of the street, it's also possible that either he or Cross simply misremembered or misspoke at the inquest, right? right. I mean, it's a stressful event, right? It's not like we can ask them at this point, right? There's mm-hmm. no way... To, 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 to find that information. Uh, these people are long buried by now. 
Right. And, and honestly, I think memories of things like that, when you're seeing something that, you know, disturbing, mm-hmm. you probably forget the small details, you know, where you're standing and whatnot. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. And, and while giving a false name, which is really the big piece of evidence that a lot of people point to, right? While giving a false name at the inquest definitely seems sketchy, I'm not sure what it proves exactly, right? Uh, for one, it's possible that he just commonly went by Cross and wasn't thinking when he gave the name to the inquest, right? As I mentioned, Cross was his stepfather's name, uh, stepfather's surname. So it's absolutely plausible that that's just a name he went by frequently, right? That was his common name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it's not like we can ask him about it. Uh, but more importantly, if Charles, and, and you touched on this a little a minute ago, right, when you talked about his work, if Charles gave the inquest a false name to hide his identity or to keep the police off his trail, right, why would he give them his correct address and place of business? Right, yeah. I mean, even with the false name, they could still find him easily. I would think more likely, and this is, you know, I, I don't know how things work back then, but like, let's say he had a warrant out for him or something like that, mm-hmm. and he just didn't want to be imprisoned when he went in to give his statement. Yeah. Give him a different name. There are a hundred different reasonable possibilities there, right? Owed somebody money. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as the murders taking place between the home and work, I don't think this is nearly the caliber of evidence that a lot of people think it is. Well, no, the thing is, with a cart driver, he could be anywhere at any time, right? Well, now, you know, to be fair, that they are mostly talking about him walking to, to, and, to from and from work. work. I guess that makes sense, but... Yeah, I mean, with the cart, it seems yeah. feasible he could go anywhere he wants, but... God uh, knows, I wouldn't, like, be... If I was one to commit a murder, I wouldn't be doing it on the way to work. Right, right. You I know? mean, let's be honest. Uh, given, like... There were probably hundreds of other people who lived near there and worked close to where he did at the time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a very densely packed uh, city. So, and this is probably just happenstance, right? It's, it's hard to say what that means exactly. So, as fascinating as I think Cross is, and he's easily my favorite, the evidence for him being Jack just isn't particularly strong. What was the guy's name that Cross... Yelled at to come over here and check this out. Oh, uh, Robert Paul. Is was Robert Paul ever seen as a suspect by people? No, no. Right, but you you got to think though. Like if if uh, Jack is pretty smooth, right? Mm-hmm. And let's say that Cross is coming up on him, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, what if he snuck away a little bit and then walked back up on him in a minute, and then he's like, "Oh, hey, man, come." Come here. Cause I mean, it's, it's just as feasible as the other. Yeah, right? exactly. So, it, I mean, and I'm not trying to say that that, uh, right. that Robert Paul did it. I'm just saying it just seems just as likely. And let's be clear that neither of these guys were ever taken as suspects at the time. Mm-hmm. It was like 130 years before people put together that he seems to have lied about his name and started to suspect him. Right. And, and you know, at the time, they may have had a good idea of why he lied about his name. And just... Right. And it's just not something that we, mm-hmm. because that a lot of the records, particularly Cross's own testimony at the inquest, appear to be lost to time. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're right. It could be that they knew. Maybe he was afraid of Jack the Ripper and just didn't want his name out in the public, right? We just don't know. Maybe. Uh, but like I said, he may be the strongest of the suspects that, you know, that are commonly put forward. But I don't think that says much, honestly, in this case. No. I, you know, I, 
I've heard several theories that it was someone that was not not necessarily powerful, but someone you know with money, mm-hmm. right? Like maybe a a gentleman of leisure, as they used to call them, right, right? Right. That would you know have the time and the resources to go do stuff like this. Yeah, like, like um, you said a minute ago with with Cross, killing people on the way to work, like yeah. it seems like that'd be noticed, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're like a wealthy guy that can just run around wherever you want, wherever you to, want, yeah. Uh, not to mention, once you get back in the expensive end of town, no one's going to suspect you a thing when you're walking around. In the yeah, that, that, that is a really good point. And what we were saying earlier about learning what you need to know from an anatomy book, well, like the wealthier people, they have access to books. Yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely fair. So that's really all I have for Jack the Ripper. That's not all there is to Jack the Ripper, of course. There are other victims who you know could I, potentially be Ripper victims. Uh but those are the ones I have chosen to go with because they're the most, uh, like the cons- uh, the consensus at least uh, seems to be that those were definitively Ripper victims. Right. But even then, using the word definitively with anything in this case is very difficult. So if I left off your suspect, I'm sorry. If we were going to cover all those, we'd have to do like a several week long series. It would take hours yeah. to cover every potential Ripper victim and suspect. Yeah, there's so much to so ain't much nobody got that kind of time. <laughs> I think part of the intrigue of that was just the speculation. You can speculate anything you want, right? Right, so right. That's, yeah, that, that's part of the fun about him never being caught. Jack can be anybody you want him to be. It's true. So, Dan, I guess I'll turn it over to you to do the tell them about the yeah. stuff thing. Yeah. yeah. We would like to thank you for listening to Fact and Suspicion. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And, you know, this is more of a historical type episode. If you like that, let us know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd love for you to give us any feedback through email, factandsuspicion at gmail.com. Leave us a comment on YouTube. You can find us on Twitter at and suspicion. And like, subscribe, tell Please a do friend. Things. Yeah, tell a friend. That helps us a lot. And as always, we will see you next week, or at least we hope so. Yeah, we hope so. <laughs> Thanks again.